You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are here in episode five of our discussion on the history and evolution of waterfowl harvest management in North America. And admittedly, most of this conversation is related to how uh, harvest management has unfolded in the U.S. I I do want to clarify that. We are again rejoined by Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock, Babcock, both of whom spent um, much of their career in in waterfowl management at the state agency level and and thus we're active participants in a lot of these discussions and, and decisions regarding waterfowl harvest management in their case in the Mississippi Flyway. And so we, on our previous episodes, we had, or previous episode, we had made it to the 1950s and that becomes a very important decade in itself. We can actually, as we go through time, look at each of these decades and say, well, this was a very significant occurrence in that decade and this was a significant occurrence in in this decade. And so we're going to touch on some of that here in the 1950s. And Dale, I want to start with you where we, uh, we talked on the previous episode about the creativity of our early pioneers in waterfowl harvest management using the best, uh, doing the best they could with the information they had available. And as a reminder, this oftentimes helps us to get in the frame of mind of what those people might have been dealing with back in those days. In the early 1950s, we did not have the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. We did not have an annual indication of what the population was doing or how habitat conditions were unfolding in key breeding areas. We didn't have that information. Our, the, the data sets that we had with which to inform and understand 
harvest regulations, harvest of this wild resource were very, very limited compared to what we have today. And certainly even as they developed in the late 19, uh, mid to late 1950s. So that's probably a relevant place to start is to remind ourselves constantly of what the understanding was, data, data availability was back in those days. And that's going to be reflected in some of what we saw with regard to variation from year to year and across flyways in terms of harvest regulations. So Dale, perhaps start out talk about that a little bit for those people that may not have may not have studied waterfowl harvest regulations back in the 1950s, which is probably going to be most of us. Uh, give people some understanding of how those things varied from year to year, and um, you know how we how we tried to to get there, do the best we could. Well, certainly, uh, you know, preface that with uh, acknowledgement that the start of a bunch of this occurred once we realized from banding data that birds were utilizing certain parts of the country, um, were uh, recognized uh, to share certain flyways or flyway corridors, if you will. And so the earliest information from banding gave us some initial insights, um, starting in the mid fifties with the, uh, the breeding population survey, we, we gained another source of information upon which to base waterfowl harvest management. And by the early sixties, information about how many birds actually were harvested, who harvested them, and in, in, in what number and where. Um, so those things in combination set the stage for biologists to um, apply, based on information, um, best recommendation from year to year. Um, certainly, uh, we saw some dramatic differences year to year, beginning in the mid to late 1950s, we often think of that period of time as the good old days, and certainly uh, by the time you got to 1958, uh, when you were dealing with 95 days in the Pacific Flyway and 60 days in the Atlantic, 70 in the Mississippi Flyway, and so on, uh, four ducks daily uh, in the Atlantic and Mississippi, and so on and so forth, um, those certainly were the good old days. But when you think about the early 50s, um, it wasn't uh, as liberal as we might think. Uh, 1954, uh, 55 days, for example, in the Mississippi Flyway, 80 days in the Pacific. By 55, they added 10 to 15 additional days, depending on the flyway. In the old information we look at, uh, was characterized as the best flights since 1952 are anticipated. And so we're dealing with um, the period that can be viewed today as the gold, good old days uh, being more variable than what we uh, than what we might have. Uh, based on 2020 hindsight, uh, have thought or characterized those years to be. Uh, by 1956, same season length. 1957, we added additional days again. Um, and so by 1958 to 1960, we were dealing with uh, certainly the most liberal regulations um, over the last uh, several decades. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's tempting to uh, maybe revise history a little bit, at least in our memory. Um, and not acknowledge uh, what, how variable regulations were, um, how variable populations were during that decade of the 1950s. Dale, I want to build on what you said. I want to provide some specifics for our listeners that may be interested in this. When we talked about 1955 as offering the the best flight since 1952 uh, being anticipated, uh, you mentioned the 10 to 15 additional days uh, over 1954, but the Atlantic and Mississippi flyways were given 70 days. The Central Flyway was given 75 days. 
A Pacific Flyway was given 80 days, and across those four flyways, the uh, the bag limits were four in the, the two eastern flyways, five in the central flyway, and then the Pacific Flyway, again, here being the, uh, the most liberal of the four flyways, seven in the daily bag limit, unless... Um, there's something in here, unless six with a provision for three depredation birds. What was that about, Dale? I don't think <laughs> well, I've ever seen that. Yeah, there was a perception at that point in time that excessive numbers of pintails and widgeon uh, were depredating crops of interest. Um, and so there was a, an opportunity to add additional depredation bird harvest, pintails and widgeon in this instance, uh, to, the, to the harvest. And so, again, an, an example of um, some regulation creativity, if you will, uh, during that era. And more creativity here. Another one of your bullets says that splits were allowed, but with a 10% penalty. That's pretty creative. Uh, certainly, one. Uh, I don't think we have that anymore, do we? Uh, states wouldn't go for that these no, days, they you don't, don't think? Um, and certainly, <laughs> at that point in time, the assumption was that if you had a split season, uh, you were optimizing. Uh, for uh, different parts of your state, for example, or, or different parts of the flyway uh, for um, harvest at opportune times. Also, a split allowed for a second opening day. And so there's at least a perception that there was a cost in having a split season, thus the 10% and in some years, uh, other years, a 20% penalty for having those split seasons. And then also the Mississippi Flyway shooting hours closed a half hour before sunset to protect wood ducks. So the, the reason I point out some of these specifics is, well, number one, some of the listeners are interested in these specifics. I would be one of those people wanting to know the details. That's just the way I am. But then also just to emphasize the almost innumerable number of decisions that waterfowl harvest management managers can make and imposed, can impose in order to achieve what they think are their or what we've identified as our de desired objectives. And the, the record of all of these different harvest regulations uh, illustrates that we've tried many of them. And so even today, as we think about, in some ways, I think it may be fair to, to describe as the increased com complexity, the number of moving parts in some of our harvest regulations as we see them today, we can go back in time and see even finer levels of decisions and restrictions that have been imposed. So this is, uh, we, we've, in many respects today, we have tremendous stability in certain aspects of our harvest regulations, but there are still things that we continue to work on based on our understanding of the populations. And so we'll get into some of those as we, as we move forward in this discussion. But I just wanted to point out some of these some of these detailed differences in harvest regulations that it existed in those in those early days. Uh, so, Ken, I want to give you an opportunity to comment on that, but also I wanted to, uh, after doing so, I wanted you to talk with us, transition to uh, the other significant event in the nineteen mid nineteen fifties, the establishment and implementation, development and implementation of the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. That's one of the. It's widely regarded as the. Um, the largest and longest running wildlife survey in the world. So we definitely want to give it some uh, due discussion for its importance in waterfowl harvest management, population management. Uh, but talk about those two things, any early thoughts on the variation in regulations that we've discussed, and then also the, uh, the significance of the breeding population and habitat survey. Well, yeah, Mike, and as we've discussed before, uh, you know, the waterfowl managers, uh, throughout time, their primary objective has been to sustain waterfowl populations, uh, to sustain waterfowl populations, not only for hunters, but for all people who enjoy waterfowl 
and the fact that that's just part of the of the wildlife landscape. And so the decisions that they were making, and they were working off of the aspect of conventional wisdom that uh, the more days you hunt, the more ducks you kill. The bigger the bag limit, the more ducks you kill. Uh, the more you hunt during the ideal times, which are sunrise to sunset or at sunset, uh, you're going to kill more ducks. And so it was using conventional wisdom to make some of these decisions. And that's why you, I think we saw some of these changes. But the advent of the of the breeding ground survey to get the breeding population estimate every year actually gave these waterfowl managers of that era targets to consider. Uh, uh, as we were getting information from the breeding grounds on numbers of ducks, if they were higher this year than they were last year, then we can be more liberal. If they were lower than they were last year, then we've got to be more restrictive. And the changes in these used all of the elements of, of bag limit and season length. Uh, the mention of split seasons, uh, I remember when that penalty was in place and it was on into the 70s or 80s when that penalty was taken out. And Dale is correct. It was the belief that a split season creates a, a, a an additional opening day and conventional wisdom. And in some cases, it's backed up by real data. Opening day kills more birds than uh, than any other day during the season. So all of these things came into play. But this breeding population survey gave a target, a, a data point that harvest managers could utilize to guide the decisions or their recommendations that they were making in this regard. Uh, but one of the other elements of this survey, and, and I mean, you're exactly right, the longevity of it, uh, the consistency of it is probably one of the greatest achievements in wildlife management, in my opinion, that has been made and that needs to be continued. But one of the things that it did uh, was not only did they count birds in terms of this survey, but they counted ponds in the surveyed area. And the survey area obviously was over the key breeding areas of of United States and in, in Canada, uh, in the prairies, and in some instances on into the boreal forest. Uh, but they not only counted numbers of birds, but they counted ponds that were available as a reflection of the quality of the habitat that the birds were facing that year. So it, it was a, a very important element. And as we get into discussions, as we get on into the to understanding more about waterfowl biology and we get into understanding things like, like uh, adaptive harvest management, both of the elements, not just the numbers of birds, but the condition of the habitat became very important during that time. Ken, I think that's a good point. The, the reference to our growing understanding of waterfowl ecology, uh, waterfowl biology, were we beginning to develop a pretty good understanding or at least a pretty basic understanding of the importance of, of the, those prairie breeding grounds for waterfowl at that time? Did we have in hand at, the, at that time some of our our, our founda foundational research on waterfowl ecology, breeding ecology? Yes, and, and Dale had mentioned this earlier that uh, some of the banding that was done, and if, you, if we went back and looked at uh, banding station longevity, we would find that uh, the bandings that were done even by people under the, under the direction of Frederick Lincoln uh, that had provided so much of the foundation for waterfowl management, those data... Uh, and the analysis of those data gave us a, 
a really good understanding of where these birds went to to breed. And it was based upon that data and that understanding that the transacts for these surveys were established. So uh, in, no no question about it, those early that early information about waterfowl biology uh, provided a great framework uh, from which to develop these breeding ground surveys that are probably one of the most important elements of waterfowl management that we have even still today. Ken, one of the other things that we get from banding data, from band returns, uh, and it's crucially important in our understanding of the the effects of harvest on waterfowl population dynamics is the survival analysis. We... We were we making any progress on survival analyses in the fifties? When did that come along? I know we'll we'll probably talk about that in great detail later on, but just to kind of um, provide a benchmark, did we have any understanding of the effects of survival and harvest in in those in those days? Well, I would I would I would certainly yield to Dale uh, in terms of the specifics on this, but I I think that use of that information in a in a, in a desire to gain that understanding probably didn't come about until into the 70s uh, when people like David Anderson and some of the other folks took these long-term banding, band recovery data sets, breeding population data sets, and began to try to develop models to gain that information. But I think Dale probably has a better understanding of that time frame, but I think it was probably more into the 70s. But, uh, but certainly the gathering of the data that became part of the analysis that was done a decade or two later was certainly a big part of what was going on in the 50s. Well, there certainly was um, early analysis of the rate at which bands were recovered and so on, a, a lot of it uh, through life tables and the like. Uh, and as Ken pointed out, uh, in the mid-1970s, uh, with Anderson and Burnham's work, um, really kind of changed the way biologists thought about uh, banding analysis and its application. Um, and so that really was an important turning point. You know, we've talked several times about the turning points in waterfowl harvest management, waterfowl management overall, and the mid-70s and the work that, um, that Anderson and Burnham did uh, was, was just real notable with regard to banding and, uh, and band analysis. We want to move on to the 1960s here pretty quick, but Dale, I want to give you an opportunity to mention anything else of significance in the 1950s. I don't want to go through a year-by-year accounting of the harvest regulations because they're they're pretty uh, – they did vary a bit, but there does seem to be some um, relative stability as we got into the late 50s. But certainly the 1960s is an era of significant change. But before we get there, anything else we need to discuss in the late 50s, Dale? The only thing I think that's that's notable is that uh, imagine uh, hunters that came out of the 1950s that had gotten used to um, 70 day seasons in the in the in the Mississippi Flyway, for example, um, uh, longer 94 days in the Pacific, and so on. Kind of got used to this incredible opportunity. Uh, so come the early 1960s, with dramatic changes in habitat conditions and bird numbers. Um, must have been a real eye-opener for folks. So it's no surprise that biologists and hunters alike were challenged with this change in bird availability, habitat conditions, and the only way at that point in time that biologists had to respond was through regulations. And that's what introduces that decade of the 1960s. Mike, there's one other element in the 50s I think that's important to mention because we, we've we always talked about the input from 
folks other than the uh, and, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or, or just the Flyway Councils, but the in the in the early fifties uh, there was a director of Fish and Wildlife Service advisory committee that was established, and I know that that continues even today in in, a, in probably a different form, but that offered an opportunity for uh, delegates from the uh, National Waterfowl Council, which obviously represented each of the four flyways, uh, people from the National Audubon Society, uh, Outdoor Writers Association, uh, the Isaac Walton League, uh, uh, the Wildlife Federation, the Wildlife Management Institute. And I know from my personal involvement in the, the 60s and into the 70s, ultimately Ducks Unlimited became a, a an important element of that. But it was a council that was set up there was a meeting held annually starting in, in 1953, I think, uh, where all of the data with regard to waterfowl population status, harvest status, was presented to all of these folks to offer comments. Uh, obviously, many of these uh, organizations uh, represent people who have an interest in waterfowl other than just hunting, but I think it was a very important element that, again, led to the partnership and the cult collaboration, cooperation among all the waterfowl interests across uh, the United States. That's a good point, Ken. We we talk often about how nothing that we do in this field is done individually by an individual person or an individual agency, and this dates all the way back to those early days. And, and so the institutions and the structures that were put in place back then and the partnerships that were based back then have kind of continued on in some form or fashion to this day. And so... You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Thanks for pointing that out. Now I want to transition to the 60s. And, you know, I will, I'll confess, guys, as a 
um, having started my professional career in the late 90s, early 2000s, graduate work in the late 90s and early 2000s, I think back around, think back across the decades of, of the history of waterfowl conservation and and the, the, the milestones and significant events that occurred in those decades, the the 1960s is an is an era that I don't think about a lot. Uh, but when you you think about the 1950s is when we started our our population and habitat survey. The 1970s becomes the benchmark in terms of population size for the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. Then the 80s is NAWAMP and the 90s is AHM. And, and then we go forward from there. And the 1960s is a bit of a gap in my mind. I've never really looked into it a whole lot, to be honest. But when you look at the, and we're going to talk a lot about this, I know the 1960s is certainly not not a gap in your mind. Uh, but when you look back at the, the BPOP record, it's actually an era when we experienced some of our lowest breeding population levels. Uh, and so that's how this begins from the 19, from 1959 to 1960, I believe there was a dramatic decline in the population levels of ducks uh, on that estimated on that survey. And what came with that were some rather dramatic changes in harvest regulations. Uh, Dale, your research tells me here that in 1958, the Mississippi Flyway was afforded 70 days uh, of hunting, and then by 1962, they were afforded only 25 days. So over a relatively short period, we went from 70 days to 25 days, and of course, that's because of some dramatic population decline. So Dale, set this up for us. What was uh, we hear a lot about the drought of the 1980s uh, and 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 90s, uh, early 90s, but what was happening in the 1960s? What did that landscape look like then? Well, I think there were two things that occurred at that period of time. One certainly was the dramatic change in habitat conditions and bird numbers uh, from the late 1950s to the early 1960s. Following that was a dramatic change in hunters and harvest. Uh, we reduced by more than half the number of waterfowl hunters from the late 50s to the early 60s. Um, I can recall uh, during the early 60s, uh, couldn't wait to see what the regulations are going to be because they changed so rapidly from year to year. And by the early 1960s, um, you know, we were down to 25 days, 30 days in the Mississippi flyaway, um, uh, 30 days with two birds or 20 days and three. And so uh, the dramatic change in regulations reflected the dramatic change in habitat conditions. As we discussed before, the only lever that waterfowl managers had and certainly used uh, aggressively was harvest management. And uh, the 1960s are probably the, the most notable reflection of our willingness, um, given uh, our desire to be good conservationists, uh, to apply harvest regulations um, based on waterfowl numbers um, and, and their trends. Now, remind me, guys, uh, Ken, I'll ask you first, when did you first start serving in the uh, in the flyway system? My first uh, flyway uh, council meeting uh, was uh, representing the state of Mississippi in 1967. And then Dale's, your, Dale, yours would have been uh, a decade or so later than that? Yes. Yeah. I started hunting in the uh, late 1950s and uh, began uh, as a waterfowl professional uh, in the mid-1970s. 
Okay, so we have a time period now where you guys are active hunters, and Ken, you are an active participant in the waterfowl harvest management process at the state level in this case. So uh, it's going to get fun here as we get into these discussions <laughs> because you're going to be able to tell some personal experiences. Um, and so, Ken, I guess with that, uh, I'll just go straight to you. You uh, you can reference any of the any of the harvest regulations as they may have been implemented population declines in the 60s but then take us up to some significant events in the uh in the late 60s that were particularly noteworthy well and, and mike it was a it's interesting that you say that in your mind uh, this is kind of a a, a period of a void uh, there was certainly a lot going on in terms of the management of waterfowl uh, one of the things that probably goes undetected when we look at at the breeding populations during that period is obviously from the breeding population surveys, we knew that the breeding areas were declining in quality. But at the same time in the 50s and 60s and, 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 and my home being in northeast Arkansas and driving back and forth between Baton Rouge, Louisiana and Lake Charles, Louisiana and northeast Arkansas, I witnessed the uh, a major change in a three or four year period in the wintering habitat, uh, migration habitat for waterfowl uh, uh, in the central part of the United States. And I think oftentimes we don't consider that uh, as much as we should. Uh, one of the things also that occurred during this period uh, with some of this change was changes in migratory patterns of waterfowl, the most significant of which were Canada geese. The folks in the, in, in the South that had wintered Canada geese for, for decades or centuries all of a sudden saw these birds uh, spending more time in the Midwest or further north in the southern part of the United States. And most of this was probably due to the fact that uh, uh, while they couldn't eat acorns and pin oak trees that fell in bottomland hardwood forests, they found corn and soybeans and rice to be pretty much to their liking, uh, all the way up to, to places in Minnesota, even, where these birds could stay. So uh, I, I think that at the same time that the breeding population survey data were showing great declines in terms of habitat quality, subsequent breeding populations, there were also things that were going on in terms of habitat for waterfowl up and down the flyways across the country that probably was not measured and not always uh, figured in terms of the influence because uh, uh, for many, many years we operated with the belief that uh, uh, so goes the prairie, so goes the breeding ground, so go the waterfowl populations. And to, there's no doubt that's the most important element. But, uh, you know, we have learned uh, that there are other parts of the world that are uh, very, very important in the annual life cycle of waterfowl as well. Yep, that's a great point, Ken, and it is something that we haven't talked uh, probably any about here on this on these this series of episodes yet. But uh, waterfowl don't stop eating when it comes uh, when fall and winter rolls around. We know that, and you know they they don't just use the food for for keeping themselves alive. It it plays an important role later on in the breeding season, preparing them for that breeding season. Uh, Everyone that is a that's in this profession that is a student of this resource knows that we have to provide for their needs year round, and we have great science through the years that has demonstrated the the effects of that. We still struggle to understand all the inner workings of it. Uh, we're getting closer, but you are absolutely right that uh, these these effects, the habitat changes on, throughout all parts of their 
range are important. And so the other the other thing that I noticed was from from the notes that we have here for this episode that was happening in the 1960s, as you've talked about, there was a lot of attention being paid to the to waterfowl populations and what was happening to them in response to these habitat changes. Uh, so Dale, talk about and, and this was some attention that was actually occurring at very high levels, at at congressional levels. So highlight a couple of those developments for us, if you could, Dale, in terms of the the type of discussions that were occurring up on the hill. You know, this is interesting, Mike. Uh, you mentioned earlier that it almost seems to be a bit of a void in uh, the the history of waterfowl management, at least from our recollection. But when you look back through the administrative record. Uh, it's really notable that in 1963, for example, there was uh, three different sessions by a House subcommittee to hear perspectives on waterfowl uh, wildlife population management. Um, and that record really does a good job of reflecting uh, the degree of, of disagreement, if you will, um, essentially setting up the hypotheses that we work on today with regard to the role of the gun versus the role of habitat the role of waterfowl numbers versus the role of waterfowl hunter numbers. There was acknowledgement at that point in time that um, in 1958, there were 2.1 million stamps sold. Um, and the birds harvested at 5.6 ducks apiece uh, was dramatically greater than what occurred by the early 1960s when you were down to less than 900,000 duck stamps sold. And so that congressional record um, does a really good job of documenting the degree to which there was um, concern, the degree to which there was dramatic differences in opinion, uh, perception about what was important, what had occurred with regard to harvest management, what had occurred with regard to birds, the relative importance of regulations and bird management versus hunter management. Without hunters, we lose a really important support base for waterfowl harvest management. Uh, interestingly enough, they reconvened in 1965, another House subcommittee hearing. Um, and so it's really uh, notable that some of the things that we take for granted today uh, in terms of our objectives for waterfowl management and so on, saw their roots in those discussions. Um, it's kind of interesting that um, uh, the... Uh, the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service at that point in time clarified the Fish and Wildlife Service objective as duck populations in the range experienced from 1956 through 1962, maintain sufficient habitat to distribute the population in an equitable manner, and making ducks available to 2.2 million hunters. What's really notable about that is that similar to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan in the mid-1980s, there's an objective there for populations, for habitat and for hunters. Um, they were way ahead of their time. And so it was a really notable period with regard to waterfowl management. Dale, I think that's a great point. You know, the you think about what what motivates Congress to have certain discussions about issues and ultimately it's one of the key determinants is what's important to their constituents. And waterfowl hunters, waterfowl conservationists through the years have consistently demonstrated a strong enough interest, a strong enough passion for this resource resource that they make it known as constituents of their congressional representatives that this is something that is of such importance to them that they want them to do something about it. Now, members of Congress can't, and, and the president and our, our governmental system can't always provide the immediate answers, but 
it, it results when, when people express their interest, their passion for this resource to those representatives, it translates into action, uh, at least discussion and, and hopefully action that's going to be beneficial and uh, helping move things in a way that are that that those constituents want. And so that's that's just a kudos to the, the supporters of this resource and being being involved enough in that political system to uh, to ensure that their representatives discuss these things that they find important to them. So just uh, a kudos to to everyone that has participated in that process. Uh Dale, looking again here at the notes, it was um, also during this time period that I think we began to see some recommendations for species-specific regulations. We haven't talked much about this thus far, but uh, up to this point the in the 1960s, other than the closed seasons, what do we know about species-specific regulations? Was this the first time that they began to emerge? Uh, certainly, there were hints of it during that period of time. Uh, we saw, beginning in the mid-1960s, for example, um, the recognition that a special bag limit on mallards was going to be important, as opposed to, earlier than that, um, a bag limit on ducks, just regardless of species of four, for example. But now we begin seeing, uh, in the early to mid-1960s, a recognition that uh, different bag limits on mallards might be necessary, uh, an opportunity for bonus bag limits for scop or extended season opportunities for scop was an example. Um, two additional scop or ringnecks in southern Louisiana is an example. Um, it was any any sort of different um, entrees, if you will, into the uh, species-specific bag limits, um, and of course that led, as we uh, undoubtedly will discuss. Uh, to some early experimentation uh, with the point system and so on, uh, beginning in the late 1960s. Mike, I think you hit on a on a point that I think is 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 worthy of mention. Uh, in my opinion, based upon my early experience with the flyways, uh, this was a period when there was not great cooperation uh, among the states in some of the flyways, uh, particularly in the Mississippi Flyway. Uh, and 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 I have little doubt in my mind that these house hearings, these oversight discussions, were triggered by state fish and wildlife agencies on behalf of their constituents in their states. And these were triggered. Uh, I had mentioned earlier the fact that some states who harvested very few waterfowl had very few hunters. Felt like that these restrictive seasons on them were unwarranted. Uh, compared to uh, a state like Louisiana or Texas or California, where they harvested uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of waterfowl. So that was one of the elements. And in fact, uh, in the Mississippi Flyway, uh, uh, this became known as uh, you're either a have state or a have not state. I don't remember where that line was drawn, but the, the have states were the ones that harvested most all of the ducks and the have not states were those that harvested very few. And they didn't feel like they should be they should be penalized. The other aspect was distribution of opportunity, and I mentioned the species uh, most notable in that regard was changes in, in in Canada geese. Today we see this occurring with other species uh, as habitats change, as as uh, climates are having an impact on migration patterns. But uh, there's little doubt in my mind that these hearings in the '60s. Uh, uh, were were brought about because of of disgruntlement of waterfowl waterfowlers in some states 
uh, because of the regulation changes that were being made. There were either even some states at that stage of the time, and one that I would mention is most notable was Louisiana, that felt like emphasis in terms of of harvest as being the factor may not be may not be uh, the the best uh, approach to take. But again, it was the only lever that we had. But uh, I, I think these hearings were generated by people who were not particularly happy with this yo-yo effect in terms of regulations that were set year after year. Again, another block in the foundation that uh, very important to today's uh, waterfowl management regimes. Absolutely. Thanks for pulling that out there, Ken. We still have a great deal to cover. Uh, we are, I mean, this is such a such a fan, fascinating topic and has so many different uh, and interesting pieces to it. We haven't even gotten to the little dust up that occurs in the late 1960s, Ken, that I know you were not a physical dust up, I don't think, but a proverbial dust up that you were around for. And then we want to hear about that in detail. So, uh, so yeah, with that, we're going to close out this episode and we're going to have you guys back and resume our conversation. That sounds all right with y'all? Certainly. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. A special thanks to our guest again on this episode, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock for their continuing conversation on the history of waterfowl management here in North America with particular emphasis on the United States. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for his work on this podcast. And of course, to you, our listeners, you're the most important part of this. We thank you for your support of the podcast. We thank you for all the feedback that you provide. And most importantly, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. 
Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.